This is a Scream Queen production. Carpenter. It's 2021, finally, and it's time to get back to the business of murder. You might notice that this episode is coming to you on a Monday instead of a Tuesday. Well, that's because I went so long without having to use a calendar, thank you COVID, that I forgot how to read one apparently. Uh, I announced that So Dead was coming back on February 1st, which for some reason I thought was a Tuesday. Turns out it's not. It's a Monday. So have no fear. Future episodes of So Dead will come to you on True Crime and Taco Tuesdays, just like they're supposed to. Uh, This is just a, a special, special episode coming to you on True Crime Tuesday Eve, maybe? Anyway, no time for small talk, because the one I've got for you today is a monster. It's time for another dead time story. Sibling rivalry. Unless you're an only child, you've experienced this to some extent. You don't need me to explain it to you. Who does mom love more? Who does better in school? Who has more friends? And then when you get older, it's who's more successful? Whose kids are more well-behaved? More... More well? I wrote that. I think the right word is better. I don't think more well is a proper term, but we're going to start this year off the way we're supposed to, which is messing up words. Uh, Yeah. Whose kids are better behaved? It never ends. There is no one you love harder or judge harder than your siblings. Siblings can be, and often are, best friends and worst enemies all at once. And it seems the closer in age siblings are, the worse the rivalry is. Especially if said siblings happen to share a gender. It's kind of like that that really annoying song, uh, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. Did you think I was going to sing that to you? I was not. Sibling rivalry can drive people to desperate lengths. We most often see this played out on the big screen with comedic results, thinking like the movie Step Brother, or the lesser popular, lesser popular. It's really early in the morning, so that's the only excuse I have for my really bad grammar today. The less popular movie Sisters, that one with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler that I thought was fucking hilarious, but it didn't ever really catch on as like a big big one. But in the real world, sibling rivalry can be dangerous or even deadly. Want proof? Look no further than the story of Danny and Larry Raines, America's only serial killer siblings. Now, don't at me talking about how that statement is inaccurate just yet. I'm going to explain it and defend it a little later on. Picture it. Kalamazoo, 1954. 
We Michiganders pride ourselves on being able to pronounce the very complicated... (laughs) I'm trying so hard to be more professional this year and it's just not working. We Michiganders pride ourselves on being able to pronounce the very complicated names we give our cities. Dwajiak, Mackinac... Ypsilanti, but Kalamazoo is definitely one of the weirdest. I always thought it sounded like a third grade musical instrument, right? Like a kazoo, Kalamazoo. Uh, Kalamazoo is said to be a Native American word, but no one can quite agree on what exactly the word means. The top two contenders are the mirage of reflecting river and bubbling or boiling water, which are both a little bit lame if you ask me. But here is something crazy interesting. Uh, It was interesting to me, at least. There are five Kalamazoo's in the United States. Aside from in Michigan, there are Kalamazoo's in Nebraska, Florida, West Virginia, and Arkansas. The more you know. Followed by the little shooting NBC more you know star. Do-do-do. That's not what that sounded like. I don't remember what it sounded like. I'm old. Leave me alone about it. Our Kalamazoo is a city of about 75,000 people in southwest Michigan, not far from my favorite home away from home, Battle Creek. It's about an hour and a half drive from my hometown of Lansing, which I know because I used to have family there, so I made that drive pretty frequently. Anyway, back to 1954. Art Rains is an abusive, unemployed alcoholic whose wife Elsie works to support the family, while he stays home with the couple's four children, two boys and two girls. So the oldest is a girl, the youngest is a girl, and the boys are in the middle. Sons Danny and Larry, who were born less than a year and a half apart, are nine and ten years old. Their entire lives, they've been pitted against one another. Not just by nature, brothers so close in age are bound to be competitive, but by nurture as well. Their father routinely made them bare-knuckle box in the living room simply for his entertainment. He forced them to drink whiskey and physically fight for nickels and dimes until one of them was so injured they could no longer stand. Everything was a competition between the Reigns boys because it had to be. Until one day, they both lost. Art abandoned his family and took off for the greener pastures of Florida with another woman. Now, it's very common for Michiganders to travel to Florida, but, like, for vacation or for the winter, there's even a name for it. We call them snowbirds. But you don't leave your entire family behind when you go, and you don't stay permanently. Although, Florida seems like a much better place for a psycho like Art Reigns. Sorry, Florida pals, but you didn't get that Florida man reputation for nothing. Even though Art Rains was a son of a bitch, he was still Danny and Larry's dad, and he abandoned them. Sure, they didn't have to brawl for sport anymore, but things were worse somehow. Their mom was still away from home working, and now they were left to their own devices 24-7 after spending a decade being taught to be violently competitive. So shit was still real ugly in the Rains' house. One particularly dangerous incident, which would later be recounted in a court of law, involved Larry getting angry with his slightly older brother and throwing a knife at him. 
He missed, but then Danny picked up the knife and chucked it right back at Larry. He missed also. And to think, if just one of them had had a little bit better aim, we might not be here talking about them on a true crime podcast right now. When the boys were teenagers, they went to Florida looking for their dad. They found him remarried, raising another woman's children as his own, working as a gas station attendant. He wanted nothing to do with them and sent them packing. The boys were devastated after being rejected by their father again. But they shouldn't have been. Here's a comment that I found on the website Upper Peninsula Wiki, allegedly written by one of Art Reigns's replacement kids. He said, or she, could have been a she, I think it was a he though, uh, I was raised by Art Reigns, Larry and Danny's father. He married my mother. He was a monster and the scariest person I have ever met in my life. My brother and I tried to stay away from him in the evenings because he would become very drunk and just want to beat us because we needed it. Or he would make us bare-knuckle box each other until one or the other would be knocked down. He would get very, very drunk and make us work all night in the garden in the dark. That's fucking weird. I would always go to friends' homes for overnight sleepovers. No one ever came to our house because if he was drunk, they were beat too. Oh, the 70s. 70s? Or no, we're not in the 70s. We're in the 50s. I don't think that would have flown even in the 70s, but in the 50s, it was okay to hit other people's kids. Crazy. He went on to say, One time deer hunting, he was drunk and started shooting toward my tree stand, laughing the whole time. I left for college in 1978 and only came home to see my mother when he wasn't around. So it sounds like the Reigns boys dodged a bullet, not having a monster like that in their lives. But unfortunately, the damage had already been done. I bet you saw that coming, though. This is a true crime podcast, right? As if things weren't already hostile and competitive enough between Danny and Larry, as teenagers, they fell in love with the same girl, a childhood friend by the name of Catherine Carpenter, who went by Kathy. Now, listen, depending on what you read, what you watch, uh, on the ID channel special about the Reigns brothers, they call her Paula. Uh, I heard another podcast where she was then again referred to as Paula, and there just there's some question about what her real name is, so I had to really dig into that. Uh, I found an old newspaper article from the 80s in which Larry called her Kathy, so then I put my stalker hat on and I found her online. I found her on Facebook. Her name's Kathy. It's not Paula. It's Kathy. Kathy was born in 1947, so she was two years younger than Larry and three, almost four years younger than Danny. So Danny and Larry are both in love with Kathy, and Kathy, bless her heart, is in love with both brothers. She's just kind of going back and forth between them, really fueling that hate fire. Larry, the younger of the two brothers, was described as the cool one. He was quiet and shy, or more the strong, silent type, whereas Danny was much more outgoing and kind of aggressive. While Kathy was burning the candle at both ends, if you know what I mean, she was definitely more into Larry. 
And while Larry was happy to have beaten his older brother at something, his heart didn't belong only to Kathy. He was also seeing a divorcee named Sue, who was 10 years his senior and had three children. Here's something you should know about that. Larry began dating, heavy quotes around dating, Sue when he was 13. A 13-year-old boy dating a 23-year-old woman with three children. That's not dating. That's child rape. Larry was a child being raped by a grown woman who would then leave the child she was raping to babysit her own children, who weren't that much younger than him, by the way, while she went out to bars and on dates with men her own age. So if Larry's dad didn't fuck him up enough, Sue sure as shit finished the job. In 1962, when he was in 10th grade, Larry dropped out of high school. What's sad is that he was actually really smart. He had an IQ of 119, which put him in the top 25% of all IQ test takers. I just, I'm always kind of thrown off about people's intelligence being decided by an IQ test. Like, when did they stop giving those? Did they decide they weren't really an accurate depiction of someone's intelligence? Uh, Because the only IQ test I've ever taken, I found on the internet, and I don't even know if it was real. So... That's, that's always weird to me. Anyway, uh, that same year, Larry dropped out of high school. He stole his first car, an important milestone to be sure. He was arrested and sent before a judge who gave him the option of either going to juvie or joining the military. So in June of 1962, at just 17 years old, Larry enlisted in the Army. The judge obviously was hoping that the strict discipline would straighten Larry out before he got too crooked. But the judge was wrong. Larry got into quite a bit of trouble during his short stint as a soldier, which culminated in a horrifying incident in 1963. One night, 18-year-old Larry was drinking with his army buddies when a fellow soldier stole Larry's five-cent bag of chips. And Larry went berserk. He went after the guy with butcher knives. Butcher knives! Listen, Larry, I like food too, okay, but we don't butcher people over potato chips. Maybe tacos or like a really good seafood boil, but not potato chips. Not even Cool Ranch Doritos, okay? The military police threw Larry in the stockade, which is basically a military prison on base, and they left him there for three months until he was discharged in May of 1963 after serving for less than a year. Following his discharge from the Army, Larry went back home to Kalamazoo. But a lot had changed in the year he was gone. With Larry away playing the hash-slinging slasher, do you like that SpongeBob reference there? Uh, There were no obstacles to Danny and Kathy's relationship, and they got pretty serious. With Kathy out of the picture, Larry went back to Sue the Rapist because apparently Kathy and Sue were the only two women in Kalamazoo. That rhymed, and I didn't mean for it to, but uh, let's continue. Larry was 18 now, so at least their relationship was legal, which meant that they didn't have to sneak around anymore. So Larry moved into Sue's house, 
took care of her kids while she was at work, and quickly settled into a life much like the one his father had, right down to being abusive towards Sue. He even got a job as a gas station attendant, just like dear old dad. Sue was a party gal. She liked to go out at night, and Larry, who was not 21, couldn't go with her. So while he was home babysitting, she was out hooking up with older men, living her best child rapist life. In an attempt to lock his lady down, Larry tried to put a ring on it. He asked Sue to marry him more than once, but every time she said, no thanks. Eventually, their toxic cycle came to an end, and they went their separate ways. And in December of 1963, Larry wound up living in a boarding house. So Larry's really spiraling here. He's been kicked out of the military and sent home in disgrace. One of the women he loves is involved with his older brother, while the other just flat out rejected him. He feels like his life is over. But he's only 18. He is still just a baby with so much life ahead of him. He doesn't see it that way, though, and he makes the decision to take his own life. On December 23, 1963, a Michigan state trooper found Larry parked along a desolate stretch of road with his car running. He had a hose going from the exhaust pipe into his driver's side window, pumping carbon monoxide into his vehicle. When he was found, Larry was out of it, but still alive. His mother had him committed to the Kalamazoo State Hospital the following day on Christmas Eve. After two weeks, though, she dropped the petition for treatment, and on January 6, 1964, Larry was released upon being diagnosed a sociopath. No follow-up treatment required or offered, no therapy, no medication, nothing. To say Larry was lost is an understatement. He literally roamed the country, hitchhiking all the way to the West Coast and back, down south, just kind of wandering aimlessly. Which is how he wound up hitchhiking on a country road in Kalamazoo on May 29, 1964, the Friday before Memorial Day. And that is how he wound up crossing paths with Gary Smock. Plymouth is a small suburb south of Detroit, almost like a straight shot from Kalamazoo across southern Michigan. So Kalamazoo is all the way to the west, and Plymouth is all the way to the east, and it's like a straight line from one to the other, about a two-hour drive apart. Plymouth was where 30-year-old Gary Smock lived with his wife Thelma and their two young daughters, five-year-old Cynthia and seven-month-old Dina. Is Dina or Deanna? Probably Deanna. Is D-E-A-N-A. I'm not sure. Um, So they lived in Plymouth in 1964. Gary was a math and science teacher at Plymouth West Middle School, beloved by students and faculty alike. He was also the president of the Michigan State Youth Fellowship of the Church of God, which was what took him to the west side of the state on May 29th. He was scouting locations for a youth convention in Battle Creek and had a meeting with a representative from the Church of God's Battle Creek chapter that afternoon. Since it was Memorial Day weekend, he and Thelma decided to make a family trip out of it. They left Plymouth on Thursday the 28th and traveled to Allegan, a small town about 30 miles northwest of Kalamazoo, where Thelma's parents lived. 
Thelma and the girls would spend the day with her family on Friday while Gary traveled to Battle Creek for his meeting and to check out venues for the convention, and then they would spend the rest of the holiday weekend on Lake Michigan, which was just another half hour west of Allegan. So Gary set out on the morning of Friday the 29th with a promise to be back in time for family dinner. At 6.15 that night, about the time he was due for supper, Gary called Thelma and told her he had been detained and would miss dinner, but would be on his way soon. Battle Creek is about an hour's drive from Allegan, so she was expecting him back by, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock at the latest. But Thelma Smock never heard from her husband again. After staying up all night worrying and waiting for Gary to arrive back at her parents' house, Thelma went to the Allegan County Sheriff's Department first thing the next morning on Saturday, May 30th. Officers told her she needed to give it 24 hours from the time that Gary went missing before she could file a complaint. So she returned that evening at 6 o'clock to file a missing persons report. While she was there, she heard a conversation over the police radio. A state trooper in Kalamazoo had just found an abandoned vehicle at the Stadium Drive interchange of US-131 in a well-traveled area. The vehicle, which appeared to have blood smeared on the rear bumper, was registered to a Gary Allen Smock. My God, Thelma cried, that's my Gary. The car was towed to the state police post in Pawpaw, where it sat while a nearby garage made a key that would unlock the trunk. It was 9 p.m. before authorities were able to get the trunk open. Inside, they found the shoeless body of Gary Smock, husband, father, teacher, youth leader. He was lying face down, his hands tied behind his back with a section of clothesline. He'd been shot once in the side of the head with a 22 caliber. It was estimated that he'd been killed 12 to 20 hours before he was found, so sometime between 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Saturday, May 30th. The car was determined to have been left on the side of the highway sometime between 6 a.m. and 11 a.m. Saturday morning. Due to the fact that Gary's shoes, watch, and the $3 cash from his wallet were missing, the leading theory was that he'd been robbed and murdered by a hitchhiker. As if investigating the roadside murder of Gary Smack wasn't enough, authorities were also looking into the possibility that his murder might be linked to the murder of another man during the same time frame, some 50 miles south of where Gary's car was found, across state lines in Elkhart, Indiana. 33-year-old gas station attendant Charles Snyder had been shot twice in the back of the head with a 22, sometime between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. that same morning at the Imperial Service Station on Cassopolis Street. A group of fishermen stopped for gas shortly after 6 a.m., and they found Snyder's body on the floor in the back room. Charles Snyder was a Korean War Army veteran from East Liverpool, Ohio. He was a divorced father of two who'd fallen on hard times and had recently been staying at the Hope Rescue Mission in South Bend, Indiana. He'd only been working at the gas station for about a month, before his murder. As soon as his body was discovered, police set up roadblocks in the area, which meant that if the same person had killed both Charles Snyder and Gary Smack, they'd made it through at least one police checkpoint with a body in the trunk and blood on the bumper. But wait, it gets worse. 
If the murders of Gary Smack and Charles Snyder were connected, and police were pretty confident that they were, there was another murder to consider. Almost two months prior, on April 6th, 20-year-old Vernon LeBen, a Fort Custer airman who worked at the mobile filling station just off I-94 in Battle Creek, had been robbed of the $200 in his till and shot in the back of the head with a 22. A customer stopped for gas just before 11.30 at night on April 6th, and they found LeBen lying unconscious on the floor of the back storage room in a pool of blood. He was rushed to the hospital, but he never regained consciousness, and he died about 12 hours later with his parents, his brother, and his 19-year-old fiancée at his bedside. LeBen was a jet aircraft mechanic in the Air Force and was a crew chief on the flight line. He was working part-time at the gas station to pay for his tuition at Kellogg Community College, where he was taking night classes to become an architect. He was also saving up for his wedding, which was scheduled for May 2nd, so less than a month after he was murdered. The similarities between the murders of Vernon LeBen and Charles Snyder were too many to discount. And then Gary Smock was killed during the same time frame as Snyder, but in the same area as LeBen. All three men were robbed and shot in the head with a 22 caliber. Did authorities have a serial killer on their hands? They wouldn't have to wait too long for an answer to that question. On June 4th, 1964, five days after the murders of Gary Smock and Charles Snyder, a man by the name of Arthur Booth placed a call to the Kalamazoo Police Department just before midnight. 19-year-old Larry Raines had decided once again, to take his own life. But first, he called Sue the Rapist to confess all of his sins. Well, not all of them, but the murder of Gary Smock, at least. Sue was in shock. She couldn't understand how a 19-year-old kid who'd been tortured and abused by his own father up until the age of nine, been raped repeatedly by her since the age of 13, could possibly turn out to be a serial killer. I can see it, Sue, for sure. So Sue called her mom, freaking out, who called a friend, who somehow wound up with a very suicidal Larry Rains at his house. Larry confessed again, and he said he wanted to talk to a priest, and then he was going to end his life. Arthur, at some point during the night, managed to slip away and alert the police. When officers arrived at Booth's Kalamazoo home, they found the slight clean-cut, distraught teenager walking down the driveway wearing Gary Smock's shoes and watch. An officer called out, Did you kill Gary Smock? Larry said, You mean the school teacher? Yeah, I did. He willingly handed over the murder weapon, which was still on his person, and he was taken into custody without incident. Back at the police station, he readily confessed to the murders of 30-year-old Gary Smock, 33-year-old Charles Snyder, and 20-year-old Vernon LeBen, as well as two others. The murder of Vernon LeBen, three months to the day after Larry was discharged from a psychiatric hospital following his first suicide attempt, was his first. He walked into the Battle Creek service station that night with robbery as a motive. When he encountered a young man about his own age who resembled him a bit, he decided to kill him as well. After all, there was no one Larry Raines hated more than himself. Both he and Vernon were young, clean-cut military men who moonlighted as gas station attendants, 
a profession they shared with Larry's father, Art Rains, who Larry also hated. So he shot Vernon at point-blank range with a twenty-two caliber handgun, took the $200 from the till, used it to buy steak and booze, and fled the state. On April 20th, so two weeks later, Larry found himself in Lexington, Kentucky. There, he stole a car and started heading back toward good old Michigan. While passing through the small rural town of Manchester, Kentucky, about 100 miles north of Lexington, he stopped at an all-night service station, the SNF Tire Company, at about 5.30 a.m. There, he encountered 38-year-old World War II Army veteran Charlie Sizemore. He robbed Sizemore of the $125 he had in the till, shot him once in the head with his 22, then dragged him to the gas station's back room and shot him once more in the head. He then fled in the stolen vehicle. Roughly 10 minutes after the shooting, a local couple found Sizemore unconscious lying in a pool of blood. He was rushed to the hospital, where he died a short time later. Roadblocks and checkpoints were set up, but 19-year-old Larry Raines, now a murderer of two, had already blown right past them. He changed course, and instead of coming back north, he drove down to Miami, ditched the getaway car, and went back to wandering the country aimlessly. I wonder, since he went specifically to Florida, I wonder if he went looking for his dad again, but it doesn't say that anywhere. Uh, A reward was offered for the capture of Charlie Sizemore's killer, and the VFW had the road that Charlie lived on renamed after him, uh, Charlie Sizemore Highway, but there were no solid leads in the case until Larry's out-of-the-blue confession to the crime a month and a half later. A month after the Sizemore murder in Kentucky, Larry Raines turned up in Nevada. On May 23rd, he was hitchhiking in Death Valley when a passerby picked him up. According to Larry, the man, whose name I couldn't find anywhere, and it drove me crazy and I tried so hard, um, the man was complaining about how broke he was, which got on Larry's nerves, so Larry shot him, dumped his body, and stole his car. Most of the articles that I read said that authorities never found the man and never even figured out who he was, but the Upper Peninsula Wiki article about Larry Raines claimed that the body was found after a couple years, but still didn't list his name, so I don't know. Following his third murder, officially making him a serial killer, Larry returned to Michigan, where he committed murders number four and five in quick succession a week later. He said that after Gary Smock picked him up while he was hitchhiking along a country road in Kalamazoo, he pulled a gun and forced the teacher and father of two to pull over. He robbed him of the $3 cash he had in his wallet, then ordered him into the trunk, where he tied him up and told him to keep quiet. Gary did not keep quiet, though, like any reasonable person locked in a trunk. And as he thumped and screamed in the trunk, Larry got annoyed, so he pulled over, opened the trunk, and fired his twenty-two twice at the bound man. The first bullet missed, but the second hit Gary in the head, killing him instantly. Larry shut the trunk, decided he was hungry, and went and got a hamburger. With Gary still in the trunk, he drove across the Michigan border into Elkhart, Indiana. Since he'd only gotten $3 from Gary, he needed to rob again. After he robbed and murdered Charles Snyder, he headed back toward home. He told authorities that he did encounter the roadblocks that were set up to catch Snyder's killer, but they just waved him right on through in Gary Smock's car with his body in the trunk 
and blood all over the back bumper. Larry ditched the car on the side of the highway and hitchhiked, hitchhiked back into Kalamazoo. He said that he was aware that there was blood visible on the rear bumper of Gary's car and that he used a bottle of Coca-Cola to try to wash it off a little bit, but ultimately he really didn't care. As Larry Raines sat in an interrogation room calmly spilling all of the tea to detectives, they realized that the serial killer teenager probably needed a psychiatric examination. He later said that the reason he confessed so freely was because he wanted to die and he thought Michigan had the death penalty. It didn't, it doesn't, and it never has. But silly little Larry Raines was under the impression that there was an electric chair at Jackson Prison and he was hoping to earn himself a date with it. While he had initially declined the offer of a public defender, he decided he should probably have one present before his psyche veil. His request fell on deaf ears, and the evaluation was conducted without counsel present, which turned out to be a big mistake. Huge. 19-year-old Larry Raines was charged with first-degree murder for the death of Gary Smack. His trial began on September 29, 1964. His guilt was never in question, but his sanity was, and for good reason. His public defender, a man by the name of Eugene Fields, claimed that his young client committed the murder of Gary Smock during a bout of temporary insanity, and that all of the murders could be explained by Larry's intense hatred for his father and himself. Three of the five men were gas station attendants with military backgrounds, like both Art and Larry Raines, and the two other men, good Samaritans who picked Larry up while he was hitchhiking, were said to resemble Art Reigns quite a bit. Larry's older brother Danny testified at the trial about their traumatic upbringing and said, I feel sorry for him. I wish I could take his place. Now jot that down because it's going to come back to hunt all of us here in a little bit. Just over a week after Larry's trial began on October 9th, a jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. Less than two months later, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was never tried for the four other murders he confessed to. Larry never bought into the whole he thought he was killing his father theory. He explained his motive much more simply. He once told a reporter, When you don't care and your world is gone, it's just a matter of time before other people's worlds become unimportant to you. Distraught that his death by electric chair plan was all for naught, Larry tried many times in many ways to kill himself during his early days in prison, but just like his first attempt, they were all unsuccessful. While Larry Raines' fate had seemingly been decided, his brother Danny, older than him by just a year and a half, was on a much different path. Remember Kathy Carpenter, the plucky gal that loved both of the Raines brothers? She was in a committed relationship with Danny, but she still had feelings for Larry, and his trial and conviction devastated her. She was still a high school senior at this point, so this was a lot to go through at such a young age. Right around the time that Larry was sentenced to life in prison, Kathy received a life sentence of her own of sorts. She found out she was pregnant. 20-year-old Danny, determined to make an honest woman out of his high school sweetheart, asked Kathy to marry him. Despite protests from her parents and her own trepidation, Kathy said yes. 
Danny and Kathy got married and had two children together. So game over on the sibling rivalry, right? Danny wins, hands down. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Serial killers be damned, the heart wants what it wants. And for some fucking reason, Kathy still wanted Larry. Batu began writing steamy love letters back and forth while he was in prison, professing their undying love for one another. And guess who found the letters? Danny, of course. As you might imagine, this did not go over well. And in January of 1967, just a couple years into their marriage, when Danny was 23 and Kathy was 19, Danny said, fuck this, I'm done. Understandably. Plan A was that Danny was going to move to Alaska and start a new life for himself. His dad did it, so why not, right? Well, not Alaska. His dad went to Florida. But if you prefer the snow, you do you, boo. It's all long, long drive from Michigan to Alaska. Can you even drive from Michigan to Alaska? I don't know, but I certainly would not want to try it. Uh, it turns out Danny didn't want to try it either, so he gave up around Wyoming, and he developed a plan B. Plan B was, if Kathy wanted a bad boy, he was going to show her a bad boy. On February 7th, 1967, when Danny happened upon a couple of teenagers whose car had broken down just outside of Cheyenne, he offered them a ride. But when they reached the teenagers' desired destination, Danny pulled a gun on them and kept driving, right across the state line, into Colorado. It's unclear what he intended to do with the teens. They weren't, like, young teens. They were both 18, one male, one female— He later said that he planned to tie them up and leave them on the side of the road. But, like, why? He wound up having a change of heart, though, and he drove the traumatized teens back to Cheyenne. At some point, one of the hostages got a hold of Danny's gun, and when he pulled over to let them out, they held him hostage at gunpoint and called the police. He was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and sentenced to 18 to 22 months in prison. Upon his release, he returned back home to Kathy and the kids in Kalamazoo. But the good times didn't last long. At all. Now, I don't know how much of that 18 to 22 month prison sentence Danny actually served, but it couldn't have been too long because just 21 months after his first kidnapping, which he should have still been in prison for, he went for round two. On November 26th, 1968, 17-year-old Kellogg Community College co-ed, say that five times fast, Dorothy King was leaving her shift at Covey's Drugstore in Battle Creek around 7 p.m. when she was approached by 25-year-old Danny Rains. He tapped on her window just as she was starting her car. She rolled it down a bit, and he asked her where the rear entrance to the pharmacy was. She pointed to the door and rolled the window back up. Danny tapped on the window again, and this time when she rolled it down, he shoved a gun in her face and told her to move over. He got behind the wheel of Dorothy's car and forced her to lay down on the floor. He drove about 10 blocks before taking a wrong turn and ending up on the Kellogg Community College campus. Police believed he was planning to take Dorothy to a wooded area behind a nearby hospital to assault her. While he was attempting to turn the car around and change directions, Dorothy jumped from the vehicle and ran screaming toward a male student who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. 
Danny fled the scene on foot, but was picked up a short time later when he was walking back to the pharmacy where Dorothy worked to get his own vehicle, which he left in the parking lot like an absolute fool. Danny Rains was charged with kidnapping and assault with intent to rob while armed. That's a very long charge, kidnapping and assault with intent to rob while armed. I feel like there's a better way to word that, but that was the official charge. He faced up to life in prison, but on February 4th, 1969, he was convicted of a lesser charge of felonious assault and sentenced to four years in prison. After Danny was arrested, Kathy, who'd recently given birth to the couple's third child, decided that guys who kidnapped teenage girls weren't really her thing. She was more into serial killers, so she filed for divorce. In February of 1972, two important things happened. Larry Raines' murder conviction was overturned due to the fact that he was denied counsel when he requested it and underwent a psyche veil without representation. So he was sent back to Kalamazoo for his retrial. Obviously, they weren't going to just let him out. Uh, Old boy was a confessed serial killer. They had plenty of other crimes they could try him for if they needed to, which was the exact reason that they hadn't tried him for the other murders initially. Five days after Larry was returned to Kalamazoo, Danny was paroled after serving three years of his four-year prison sentence, and he also returned to Kalamazoo. Now 27 and 28 years old, the Rains boys were both back in their hometown at the same time for the first time in nearly a decade. But their experiences were vastly different. Danny, a divorced, convicted felon whose attempts at violent crime made him look more like a complete buffoon than a dangerous predator, took a job as a gas station attendant at the standard filling station on Sprinkle Road. Oh, the irony. He not only joined the family business following in the footsteps of his father, who he hated, and his brother, who he also hated, but his brother was a serial killer who targeted gas station attendants. Anyhow, while Danny slipped into a quiet, anonymous, mundane existence, Larry's photo was splashed all over the front pages of local papers. The big bad wolf, so to speak, was back in town. And the public ate it up. But Danny, ever the green-eyed monster, couldn't allow his brother to have the spotlight, no matter how negative that attention was. He had to do something to steal it back. And so... Just a month after he was paroled, he did. On March 19, 1972, an elderly woman by the name of Josephine Van Haften was walking through a field near her home when she spotted a toddler wandering, alone, near an industrial complex in Kalamazoo. When she approached the little boy, who appeared to be no more than two years old, she found that he was covered in dirt and blood, but didn't appear to be injured. She asked him, where's your mommy? And he led her to the rear of a storage elevator where the body of his mother lay face down on the pavement in a pool of blood, partially concealed by a pile of brush. Her hands were bound in front of her and there was a plastic cord wrapped around her neck. She'd been beaten, raped, and stabbed, and her wallet was missing. With the bloody toddler in her arms, the woman found a payphone and called police. They knew instantly who the victim was. The night before, on March 18th, a man by the name of Thomas Houck had filed a missing persons report for his 28-year-old wife, Patricia, and their 17-month-old son, Cody. 
The two had gone shopping at Topps Department Store in Kalamazoo Saturday evening and never returned home. Little Cody was returned to his father, but police had no clues as to who had killed Patricia or why. On July 17th, 1972, so what's that? April, May, June, July. Four months later, a motorcycle gang gallivanting through the woods in Galesburg, a small town just east of Kalamazoo, came upon an abandoned blue opal cadet, which is apparently a type of car in the 70s. Okay. Uh, With two badly decomposed bodies in the back seat. They called police, who discovered that the vehicle was registered to a John Clark of Chicago. Mr. Clark had reported his 19-year-old daughter and her best friend Claudia Bidstrip, who was also 19, missing a week earlier on July 9th. Linda and Claudia did everything together. They went to high school together and graduated in 1971. They got an apartment together. They got jobs together as secretaries for an electrical manufacturing company, They quit those jobs together on June 30th, just days before they went missing. They were both avid bowlers, so naturally, they bowled together. So it only made sense when Linda decided to go visit her brother in Ann Arbor that Claudia would go with her. The girls left Chicago on July 6th. The drive from Chicago to Ann Arbor takes about three and a half, four hours, but Kathy and Claudia never arrived. Claudia's dad was actually a detective for the Chicago Police Department. A missing persons report was filed in Chicago, where the girls were last seen, on the 9th of July. Their families had no idea how far into their trip they'd made it before something went horribly wrong, so they didn't have a clue where to start looking. The girls were found with their hands bound and plastic cords wrapped around their necks. Their bodies were too badly decomposed for officials to determine an official cause of death or to tell whether the girls had been raped. Because their purses were empty and both girls had cords wrapped around their necks, officials thought that it was likely that they'd been robbed and strangled. The leading theories were that maybe they'd picked up a hitchhiker or encountered a predator after running into car trouble. Linda's car was notoriously unreliable. Or maybe they'd crossed paths with the wrong person at a restoration. At a restoration. That's what they should just call this now, the, the restaurant-gas station combos. Uh, at a restaurant or a gas station along the highway. Officials determined that whoever killed the girls was probably local or at the very least familiar with the area. To get to the remote spot where their car was found, you had to travel down a country road along a secluded drive around an abandoned farmhouse, through an opening in a hedge fence, and then down a single-lane gravel road to the banks of the Kalamazoo River. It was a popular area for snowmobilers and motorcyclists, but would be almost impossible for your random hitchhiker or drifter to find. Also, authorities could not ignore the similarities between the double murder and the murder of Patricia Houck a few months prior. All pretty women, bound, robbed, and strangled, then dumped in a remote location. Could it be that the city of Kalamazoo had another serial killer on its hands? They still weren't done with their last serial killer, Larry Raines, yet. He was still holed up in cell number one at the Kalamazoo County Jail, awaiting retrial for the murder of Gary Smock. Although there was a very, very slim chance that he might actually go free, there was still that chance. And now, eight years later, it was happening again. To say that authorities were frustrated would be an understatement. 
Just like with the Larry Raines case, they suspected they had a serial killer in their midst, but they had no idea who it was. They just had to wait for it to happen again, or for a lead to come to them. And, just like in the Larry Raines case, a lead did come right to them, in the form of a phone call from a frightened young man with a harrowing story to tell. Brent Coster was a 15-year-old juvenile delinquent with a long record and even longer legs. He was six foot six at just 15 years old. Brent was a runaway from an abusive home. His mother had schizophrenia and his father was an abusive alcoholic. He slept on friends' couches and was just kind of wandering aimlessly through life when he met Danny Rains in the summer of 1972. The man and the boy became best friends, which is weird, and Danny allowed Brent to stay at his girlfriend's trailer and also paid him under the table to help him out at the service station where Danny worked, as a gas station attendant. Danny took Brent under his wing like the little brother that he always wanted, even though he did have a little brother of his own, he just hated that one. And Brent looked up to Danny. He craved his attention and acceptance. He would have done anything for him. And so he did. When, shortly after they met, Danny began bragging to Brent about the woman he'd raped and murdered a few months back, Brent didn't go running in the other direction, screaming at the top of his lungs like he should have. Danny told Brent that he was driving by Topps Discount Store in Kalamazoo on March 18th when he spotted Patricia Hout getting out of her car, her toddler in her arms. He parked his creepy kidnapper van beside her vehicle and waited. She was in the store for about an hour. She put her bag in the back seat and her son in the passenger seat because this was 1972, way before rear-facing five-point harnesses and airbags everywhere you look. As she walked around to the driver's side, Danny made his move. He accosted her with a knife, and she fell into the front seat of her car. He pulled her out dragged her to his van where he had the side door open. He bound her hands with rope and tried to strangle her with a plastic cord, but she fought like hell and clawed his face. He raped her and he beat her, but she continued to fight. She fought so hard that at one point she and Danny fell out of the van onto the ground. Patricia rolled to her stomach, her hands still tied, and attempted to scoot away. Danny pulled out his knife and stabbed her in the back. She kept trying to crawl away, so he twisted the knife until she stopped moving. He tossed Patricia's dead body into the back of the van. Ben noticed that baby Cody had somehow gotten out of the car, so he put him in the van's front seat, and he drove to the remote storage elevator where Patricia and Cody were found the next day. He let Cody live because he could tell that he was too young to say more than a few words, and he would not be able to identify him or tell anyone what happened. So after Danny tells Brent this horrible story, he's like, hey, you know what? I kind of want to do that again. We should totally do it together next time. And Brent's dumbass was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'm down. You know, if the opportunity presents itself. And the opportunity presented itself a couple weeks later on July 6th when Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup rolled into the Sprinkle Road service station where Danny Rains worked late at night. Danny was the only attendant on duty, although, of course, his shadow, Brent Coster, was there with him. There were no other customers, no witnesses. The girls at this point were about halfway through their road trip. Brent began to fill the gas tank while Danny lifted the hood to, quote-unquote, check the oil. 
In actuality, he removed a spark plug. So when Linda started the engine again, the car made a funky noise. And it's easy to say now, you know, it should have raised a red flag that there was nothing wrong with the car before Danny Rain stuck his head under the hood and now there was. But Linda was always having car trouble. She'd just been driving on the highway for two hours straight. There was really no reason for her to think that anything nefarious was going on. Danny told Linda to pull around back to the service station bay where they did repairs. Once the girls had parked the car in the service bay, Danny and Brent attacked. They pulled knives and tied both girls up. They then took turns raping them for several hours. One would act as the lookout and help the occasional customer while the other raped, beat, and tortured the young women. Claudia was killed first. Danny told Brent that it was time for him to taste the medicine. So Brent tried to strangle her, but it is not easy to strangle someone to death, despite how easy Hollywood makes it look. So Danny joined in, and they killed her together. Brent then strangled Linda to death on his own. Once both girls were dead, Danny and Brent put them in the back seat of Linda's car and covered them with a blanket. Brent drove the car, alone, out to a secluded spot in the woods where it would be found a week and a half later. He'd taken a can of gasoline with him, which he poured all over the car. He then tossed a lit cigarette into the car. He did not, however, wait to see if the accelerant caught the flame, which it did not. So he walked a ways back towards town thinking the car was going to burn, It didn't, and then he hitchhiked the rest of the way back to the gas station where Danny was reveling in the things that he'd stolen from Linda and Claudia. Money, jewelry, and personal photos they had in their purses. When Brent made the decision to turn himself and Danny in a couple months later, it was more out of fear than guilt. Danny's behavior had become a bit suspicious, and Brent feared that Danny was planning to kill him since he was the only person who knew that Larry was not the only serial killer in the Reigns family. So he confessed to his role in the murders of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup and told authorities the story Danny told him about the murder of Patricia Houck. When he tells them that the man responsible is Danny Reigns, officials about shit themselves. Although the crimes were different and the victim demographic was so different— The idea that there might be another serial killer in Kalamazoo, of course, brought Larry Raines and his crime spree to mind. So authorities were floored to learn that, yes, they did have a second serial killer in town less than a decade later, and he just happened to be the big brother of their first serial killer. That has never happened before. Like, ever, ever. So when I said way back at the beginning of this episode, like six and a half hours ago, that Danny and Larry Raines were America's only serial killer siblings, this is what I meant. If you Google serial killer siblings, you will find more than just the Raines brothers. But all of those siblings committed their crimes together as a family activity. Only the Raines brothers operated independently from one another. Years apart, different M.O.s, different motives. When Danny Raines was arrested for three murders on September 4th, 1972, he did not go the same route as his brother Larry and spill all. He staunchly professed his innocence. He did, however, go to the same place as Larry. Remember, Larry was still at the Kalamazoo County Jail awaiting retrial for the murder of Gary Smock. He was in cell number one, 
and may put Danny in cell number two. I bet that pissed Danny off so bad having to be prisoner number two to Larry's prisoner number one. One might think, after being separated for nearly a decade, that the brothers would be happy to be reunited and be able to see each other and talk every day. But as it turns out, no. Larry Raines had disowned his older brother because, at some point after he became a serial killer, but before Danny became one, Danny decided that winning Kathy wasn't good enough, and he actually carried on a relationship with Sue the Rapist, too. Remember her? the older woman that Larry started sleeping with when he was 13. So Danny didn't just get the girl, he got both girls. Never one to be outdone by pettiness, Larry Raines got the last word. He decided that he didn't want to go through another trial, even if somehow he was found not guilty for Gary Smock's murder the second time around, there were still four other murders waiting in the wings that he could be charged with. He would never be a free man again, and no amount of legal wrangling could change that. But he did have this little bit of power to bargain with, and he used it to get a final dig in at Danny. Larry agreed to plead guilty to Gary Smock's murder if he would be allowed to A. Transfer from the prison in Marquette, way up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, to the prison in... Say it with me, friends. Ionia. (laughs) The prison in Ionia was closer to home and apparently more prisoner-friendly and, as we know, very easy to fucking escape. Also, Larry wanted to be allowed to legally change his name to cut all ties with the Reigns family. The courts basically said, sure, whatever. We don't give a fuck what it says on your ID badge. We're still just going to call you inmate. So Larry Reigns legally changed his name to Monk. Steppenwolf. Yes, you heard me right. And as promised, he was transferred from Marquette to Ionia. Larry Monk Steppenwolf Reigns had an ulterior motive for his transfer request, and it was his desire to twist the dagger into his brother's heart one last time. Throughout Danny's ridiculous competitive murder spree, Larry and Kathy continued their emotional affair. And once Larry was moved to Ionia, where it was much easier for Kathy to visit, they fucking got married. Yes, Larry married his brother's wife and the mother of his three children. They divorced a few years later, but still, like, the level of petty between these two, I just cannot. I can't handle it. But back to Danny and Brent. So... Brent's 15, and while he started out in a juvenile facility, it was quickly determined that he would be tried as an adult. No fucking way was he going to be maxed out of a juvenile facility at 19 after the shit he admitted to. So prosecutors offered him a deal. Tell us everything. Turn state's witness and testify against Danny, and we'll drop all the charges except for one. We'll charge you with second-degree murder for Linda Clark, and we'll go light on that sentence. When Brent agreed to these terms, authorities had no idea what telling them everything would entail. Turns out, Linda and Claudia weren't Danny Raines' final victims. There was one more. On August 5, 1972, a month after they killed Linda and Claudia, Danny and Brent were riding around, quite literally looking for trouble, 
when they spotted 18-year-old Western Michigan University co-ed Pamela Fearnow hitchhiking. Pamela was an honor student who'd had perfect attendance at Hesperia High School. She was creative. She wrote songs and poems, and she wanted to travel abroad and study in Spain. She saved every letter her 10-year-old little sister sent her after she moved away for college. Hesperia, which I am probably most definitely pronouncing wrong, is a little tiny baby-sized village of less than 1,000 people in northern Michigan, up near White Cloud, where our favorite creepy swamp, the Dudgeon Swamp, is located. Hesperia is over 100 miles from Kalamazoo, which is home to Western Michigan University's campus. There are more than 20,000 students enrolled at WMU. That's 20 times the number of people in the entire town that Pamela grew up in. So this was a big change for her. But she was excited about it. One of the things she was excited about was that her older sister, Betty, lived in Kalamazoo with her husband and kids, and this gave the two a chance to reconnect. On the night of August 5th, Pamela babysat for Betty's kids. Betty drove her home, but before she dropped her off, she asked her if she needed a ride anywhere. Pamela told her, you know, no, it's fine, I'm fine, and the two said goodbye. A few hours later, one of Pamela's friends called Betty because Pamela had gone out after Betty dropped her off at home, and she never returned. Betty almost didn't call the police because Pamela was 18, she lived on a big college campus, she'd only been gone a few hours, Um, but she did call them in the end, and police took the case seriously immediately because what they knew, and Betty didn't, was that there was a serial killer on the loose targeting pretty young girls. Police found Pamela's leather belt and sandals during their search, but there was no sign of Pamela. So when Brent Coster confessed to her murder, police didn't even know she'd been murdered. They suspected, but officially she was still just a missing person at that point. According to Brent, after he and Danny picked Pamela up, they took her at knife point to a wooded area. Over the course of several hours, they raped her, beat her, tortured her, and moved locations a few times. At one point, they plied her with wine to help her relax. Eventually, they wound up at Morrow Lake on the Kalamazoo River, less than a mile from where they'd killed Linda and Claudia, which was pretty fucking bold, considering that was still a crime scene, and it had police and FBI crawling all over it just a couple weeks prior. They suffocated Pamela with a plastic bag and strangled her with a rope, then hid the body in a secluded area. And that was where officials found her on October 17th, over two months after she disappeared. Brent Coster led them to the body. So Danny Raines was charged with a fourth murder, while Brent was still charged with just the one. Danny's first trial was in February for the murder of Patricia Houck. He pled not guilty. The jury disagreed and sentenced him to life in prison. His second trial was five months later for the murder of Pamela Fearnow. Again, he pled not guilty And again, the jury disagreed and sentenced him to life in prison. Ahead of his third trial for the murders of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup, Danny pled no contest because he was already serving multiple life sentences. He tried, of course, over the years to appeal his convictions, but all of his appeals have been denied. Brent Coster took much longer to bring to trial because the issue of whether to charge him as a minor or an adult made it all the way to the Supreme Court. In the end, he was tried as an adult. In June of 1975, he pled guilty as promised, but not as promised. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
So they did only charge him with one count of second-degree murder, but they totally whiffed on the light sentence they'd promised, to which I say thank you. Today, Larry Raines, a.k.a. Monk Steppenwolf, is 75 years old. He is currently being held at the Saginaw Correctional Facility, which, as you might have guessed, is in Saginaw, up in the little crick of the thumb if we're looking at Michigan like a, like a mitten, because it is. Danny Raines is 77 years old, and he is currently housed at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, which is down kind of like at the bottom of the center of the palm of the hand. Brent Coster is currently 64 years old. And at the time of this recording, he is a free man. Oh yeah, you heard me right. Here's the deal. Until January 21st, 2021, so two days prior to this recording. Actually, I waited until today to record this because I wanted to see what happened on the 21st. So um, yeah, today, I know you're listening on February 1st, but for me, it's January 23rd right now. And Brent Coster was freed two days ago. He was granted parole in November of 2020. Just one of the many awful things that happened in the year of all of the awful things. How? You ask, does a man sentenced to life without the possibility of parole get fucking parole? Well, he was 15 when he was convicted, and in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that juveniles should not be sentenced to mandatory life terms. This decision was made retroactive, which means that all of the prisoners in the U.S. of A. that had been sentenced to life as minors, they all have to be resentenced. Rather than resentence Brent Coster, the parole board made the decision to grant him parole after he'd served 48 years in prison. But Kalamazoo's prosecuting attorney, a man by the name of Jeff Getting, was not happy about this. He released a statement after the ruling stating that he was very troubled by the Michigan Department of Corrections choosing to release an admitted serial rapist slash serial murderer. He said he and his staff were reviewing the decision to determine what, if any, options they had and, quote, in my opinion, the risk to our community is simply unacceptable. I'm not aware of another person with such a horrific history having ever been released anywhere. So, yeah, dude is out and about walking free as a 64-year-old man here in Michigan as you're listening to this. Yikes a million. And then that brings to mind another case and another serial killer in Michigan that's up for parole this year, Don Jean Miller here in Lansing, East Lansing, Ingham County. Uh, It's easy to say there's no way. There's no way they're going to let him out. But they fucking might. They let Brent Coster out. Their crimes were pretty similar going after young, pretty women in the 70s. So... Don't hold your breath that justice is going to remain served in that case. So while Brent Coster is no longer behind bars, guess who is? A young man by the name of Matthew Steppenwolf, who is, as his name might suggest, related to Larry Monk Steppenwolf Reigns. How are they related? I don't know. All of the articles that I read just stated that they were related. None of them specified in what way. But as we know, 
Steppenwolf is not a real last name. It's specific to Larry Monk. Like, he didn't, it's not the same, his siblings and his cousins, nobody else has that last name. He was the first and only one with that last name. So I feel like this Matthew kid has to be either his son or his grandson. Either one is possible. He was born in 1988 when Larry was 43. Larry, bless his crazy ass, has been married twice and had a whole string of girlfriends, including at least one former prison guard, uh, all while he's been behind bars. So it's entirely possible and very likely um, that he procreated. And judging by the fact that there are actually a good number of Steppenwolves in the Kalamazoo area today, which, again, that's a made-up last name, I would say it's possible that he procreated more than once. I even found Kathy's 73-year-old brother-loving self on Facebook, and she still uses the last name Steppenwolf, even though she and Larry have been divorced for over 40 years. So... How is Matthew Steppenwolf related to Larry Monk Steppenwolf reigns? I have no idea. Maybe one of you knows. Do you know? If you know, please tell me. Here's a question I can answer for you, though. Why is 32-year-old Matthew Todd Steppenwolf behind bars at Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee? One thing real quick. If these reigns keep it up, we are going to run out of prisons to keep them separate in. <laughs> Jeez, oh, Pete's. Okay. January 24th, 2017, Matthew Steppenwolf, simply put, lost his shit. At the time, he was 28 years old, living in Plainwell, which is a small town near Kalamazoo. He was the married father of three small children, and he and his wife were having marital troubles. He flat out told police, I just lost it. But then he also said, I was doing what God wanted me to do, the right thing. So take your pick on a motive, but what did he do? I'll tell you. A, he went to a sit-go gas station on East Michigan Avenue and M96 in Comstock Township, a suburb of Kalamazoo. He robbed the station with a 20-gauge shotgun for just under $10 worth of gas. What the fuck is it with these Rains boys and gas stations? Two, He drove to a house on East G Avenue in Cooper Township, which is another Kalamazoo suburb, and he lit a container of kerosene in an attempt to burn the house down. He did catch the house on fire, but he didn't burn it down. This wasn't just any house, though. A few months prior, a woman who lived in the house had struck Matthew's mother while she was riding a motorcycle and injured her. I have so many questions. The first of which is, is his mother Kathy Steppenwolf or is she his grandma? Because was Kathy Steppenwolf's old ass riding a motorcycle? I can't. That sounds crazy to me. And what were the circumstances surrounding this accident? The woman who caused the accident was arrested and Steppenwolf knew where she lived because he followed her home from jail following the crash. So like she went to jail. Was she intoxicated? Did she hit his mom on purpose? Accidents happen. What what was the reason for him being so enraged at this woman that he felt the need to try to set her house on fire with her inside it? C. After firebombing a woman's house, he drove to a house on Monterey Drive in Kalamazoo and fired seven shots into the home with the same shotgun that he'd used to rob the gas station. He believed his wife was having an affair with one of the men living inside the house. 
After firing several rounds, one of which hit a woman who lived there in the chest, he threw a Molotov cocktail at the house and sped away in his red minivan. He told police, they destroyed my fucking house, so I destroyed theirs. Four, he violently carjacked and assaulted a woman at Drake Road and Croydon Avenue on Kalamazoo's west side. She tried to fight him off, but he punched her in the face repeatedly and ripped the keys to her Chevy Malibu out of her hand. E? This is getting really confusing, and I'm really regretting going with the alternating letters and numbers format, but we started it, so let's let's continue. Uh, lastly, Steppenwolf drove the stolen Malibu to eastern Kalamazoo County, where he crashed it into a tree on T.S. Avenue near 42nd Street. He told police he crashed it because God made the vehicle turn. And this all happened, mind you, in the middle of a weekday morning after he dropped his daughter off at school. All I've got to say about this is that's methed up. And indeed, Matthew Steppenwolf's wife told police that her husband was addicted to meth and was high the night before his two-hour crime spree. Steppenwolf was injured in the accident that God caused, and he was taken to the hospital by ambulance. Upon his release, he was arrested, and he was charged with armed robbery, carjacking, ethnic intimidation, discharge of a firearm in or at a building, two counts of second-degree arson, and four counts of felony firearm possession or use. On February 1st, 2018, over a year after the incident, Matthew Steppenwolf pled guilty but mentally ill to six of the charges against him, while four of the charges were dropped. Steppenwolf was sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison. His earliest release date is currently listed as January 24th, 2034. But if they're going to let fucking Brent Coster out of prison, who knows when he might actually be freed. And that is the story of the Raines brothers from Kalamazoo, the only known sibling serial killers that didn't commit their crimes as a team. What in the actual hell was that? I've got some new fun stuff for 2021. You guys probably noticed the new logo, and I know that you noticed that new theme song. How awesome was that? The rest of it, though, is going to have to wait because this was a really long episode. So we're starting off the new season with just the meat and potatoes, no side dishes. I hope you all found this case as horrifically fascinating as I did. My main sources for this episode were an article written by Susan Ager for the Detroit Free Press in 1986, way back when I was a wee tyke, uh, called The Wolf of Jacktown, the ID channel show Evil King, no, not Evil King, (laughs) Evil Kin, Season 4, Episode 8, To Lose is a Sin, Uh, the website Upper Peninsula Wiki, and as always, my saving grace, newspapers.com. So much newspapers.com. You can find a full list of resources for this episode on the webpage for this episode on the SoDead website. I feel like that was a really confusing sentence, but if you really want my sources, you'll figure out what I meant. Also, I have to give a huge shout out to deadhead Tammy Austin for bringing this case to my attention. I had watched something on it before uh, that ID special, the Evil Kin episode, I'm pretty sure. But I think it was before the podcast, so I wasn't really, like, 
hyper-tuned in to Michigan cases the way I am now, but she sent me an article last fall about Brent Coster's parole, and that's what sent me down the rabbit hole. It doesn't take much, folks, so thank you, Tammy, for that. I think that's it for today. Yeah, that's it. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.